Check out part one of this episode for an overview of Animation Month and discussion of Rankin and Bass's The Hobbit. Okay. Lord of the Rings 1978 comes to us from animator Ralph Bakshi. So, Dan, what do you know about Ralph Bakshi? It's been a few years since I've read up on Ralph Bakshi. I I didn't get too much of a chance to dive deep into his history and his contributions to get a refresher. But from, from what I remember when I had been reading a lot about animation is um, he's kind of a maverick um, who did a lot to revive the innovation in animation. In particular, he had a really, I haven't seen it, but really subversive uh, set of pictures that came out I think in the early 70s or possibly late 60s, led by Fritz the Cat was one. And they were adult focused and they brought money back into animation and, and were unexpected hits kind of around Disney's and the deer. Right. So he made some raunchy, adult oriented, edgy, independent animated features. Fritz the Cat the highest grossing X-rated animated film ever made. And I also know that he has a reputation for being really ambitious, just having a lot of big ideas that never really mounted into a masterpiece, despite visions of masterpieces. I would believe that. I think that tracks based on what we've seen so far. Mm Mm-hmm. So this movie, I was struck that I did not remember at all. So it's possible this was not among the ones rented when I was nine. Maybe it was just The Hobbit and Return of the King. I'm not really sure. But I feel like I would have remembered this. Yeah. Because this movie is real weird. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot going on in this. For one, we got to talk about the animation style. So a lot of this is rotoscoped. And my understanding of rotoscoping involves filming live actors doing a scene or some component of a scene. And then the animators trace over the live action footage. And so you end up with animated characters who move just like real people. This always looks uncanny valley to me. Hmm. To me, I feel like there's a way that cartoon characters are supposed to move and having the weight and speed of a real human isn't it. So I know there's a little bit of a spectrum of rotoscoping. Um, I think like true rotoscoping is what you're describing. And I think uh, like Richard Linklater has dabbled with this as well. I don't know if you've seen any of his rotoscoped pictures. Yeah, well, I don't know about Linklater. I saw the one called Waking Life. I know there's also a Scanner Darkly. 
Yeah, those are both the, the Linklaters. Okay. I didn't know Linklater did those. Yeah, yeah. No, he gets... Um, he Every now and then, he he does one. Um, he just had one come out this year, actually, called Apollo 10 and a half, that I would think about picking at some point. It's like... I know it is a nostalgic look at the space race from the perspective of a kid. But yeah, he, he's made three, I think, of those. I think you mentioned two of them, plus the one I mentioned. I don't think there were any others. But uh, but I know there's kind of more generally rotoscope. Uh, if it's not true rotoscoping, sometimes they will look, they will basically pre-film footage and then essentially redraw it rather than just retrace it. So then it's not quite as uncanny. Like Cinderella, I think, had a lot of that. And I think there's some of that in here too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think when they do it that way, use the live action as reference footage and then draw based on that reference. I think that works a lot better. And there's certainly been a lot of that in Disney over the years. Um, there's some good behind the scenes footage of that being done in Alice in Wonderland and Peter Pan and even up to Hercules. Like there's footage of muse actresses doing the dance routines and then them using that as a reference. So I think that can be a very valuable tool. But when you just trace it straight, like I think is happening a lot of the time here, it looks really weird to me. Mm -hmm. But there's like a sliding scale of it, even in here, like some of it looks very animated looks like cells and some of it looks almost just like they tinted some live action it's like i feel like maybe they ran out of money or like i don't know didn't have the budget to do everything they wanted to do yeah it's really bizarre what i was thinking was going on was like there's a couple shots that look completely cell animated like there's a fish swimming around and it looks like they drew the whole thing uh, and then if it's like a lead character, like a fellowship member, it seems like they got completely drawn, like drawn over footage. So like if it's Aragorn or Legolas, they're drawn, but I think it's mostly the rotoscoped stuff, but at least fully like cartooned. But then, yeah, when it's a big crowd scene, it's this weird thing that I've never seen before that... I don't know if you could even call it rotoscoping. I tried to find out more about this, and I saw this technique called solarization. Hmm. And it really just looks like a TikTok filter or something. Like, it's... If you use the, the posterization effect on Photoshop, that's what this looks like. But it's, it's really just, like, live-action people walking around, but they're, like, weirdly shaded. Uh, so really unusual, and it's cutting back between these all the time, just going back and forth between these different looks and styles. And so you never have a consistent style. This is one of the ugliest movies I've ever seen. It's just the lack of consistent style. Even the character designs on top of the rotoscoping, they're just ugly. They're not good to look at, and they're not even interesting ugly, like the dwarves in the Hobbit when we talked and they're not even like transcendently ugly, ugly as a aesthetic statement. It's just like a mishmash of gnarly shit slapped together. That does not look good. The one thing that really worked for me is when they show the orcs in that sort of solarized style or really like any of the bad guys, 
it's almost like an impressionistic vision of evil. They're like these black outlines with these glowing red eyes that kind of like dominate the screen. I thought that was actually kind of artistic and cool, even if it didn't look all that great. Sometimes it looked better than others, but in general, this movie just does not know what the hell it wants to look like. No. Yeah, the orcs to me, I mean, the the use of the black, like them being in silhouette was kind of cool, but you can tell that they're all humans and they just all have the exact same orc face drawn on. It's the two glowing red eyes and like two big white fangs, literally like drawn on with a wax pencil and like jerking around from frame to frame. Really strange look. Right. That's fair. Interestingly, this was the first animated movie that Tim Burton worked on. He was just getting started as an animator. Probably a a minor role, but it is kind of interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. Do you know anything specific he worked on? No, I don't know what he what he contributed specifically, but he was he was there somewhere. I mean, we don't want to have you here all night talking your ears off totally, but like the the rights and the ideas behind what the Lord of the Rings movie was going to be had just bounced around over the decades. Like at one point there was discussion that the Beatles wanted to make a Lord of the Rings movie. Have you ever read about that, Dan? No, really? Yeah, it was something that they discussed. I don't know what the heck that would have looked like, but they had at least a passing interest in it. There was discussion that maybe Stanley Kubrick might be interested, but he decided it was unfilmable. Stanley Kubrick? Do it do Beatles, Lord of the Rings? Oh my god. That would I can't even imagine what that would have looked like. That's like a Mad Libs you just made up. <laughs> Look into it. Uh there was there was talk, but it never went anywhere. But uh, eventually it got to the point where there was a script for the movie by this guy named John Borman. Uh as of the early 70s, uh, I guess some money got thrown behind that to just kind of get him out of the way. It's like, here's a couple million. We're not going to make this movie. Uh, and it, it fell to Bakshi to make. And this was the result. And I'm going to just try to streamline this story because we always tell the story. And I, I do think it serves as a good skeleton to call out specific things we noticed it mirrors the plot of the Hobbit in some ways structurally because when it kicks off, well, first of course we have a prologue, some explanation of the deeper lore. And we find out about the rings of power, which were these ancient rings given to leaders among the different middle earth races. And we find out about the dark Lord, a guy named Sauron who apparently made one specific ring that was going to control all the others and bend all the peoples of Middle-earth to his will. Specifically, he was able to corrupt the nine human kings who now serve him as Ring Wraiths, which I remember being one of the coolest, most memorable things about the first Peter Jackson movie back in 2001. These are the spooky Grim Reaper guys they ride around on horses. But are they different from the Nazgul? They are the same thing as the Nazgul. Okay, that confused me to no end. I was like, okay, if he's a Nazgul and he's a Ringwraith, but they're the same thing. Okay. Yeah, which is a big thing in Tolkien stuff is like everything's got like three different names because, I mean, it's like, you know, the French call Germany Alamein and the 
Germans call Germany Deutschland. Well, it's like that, but everything. Everything's got a different name among all the people. And so, like, the elvish name for Gandalf is Mithrandir. And it just goes on and on and on, and you can bury yourself in this stuff. So, yeah, it gets confusing. There's just so many goddamn names of things and countries and kings and people. And it's like, just because a dude made this up doesn't mean you got to like it, people. (laughs) That could be a slogan for our podcast, I think. (laughs) At least for for works of fiction that we cover. But yeah, I I hear what you're saying. Try not to be too jaded here. (laughs) But... Back in the day, in this ancient past prologue, the elves and the humans worked together, and they were able to fight off Sauron enough that they destroyed his physical body. But they didn't destroy the ring. And because the ring endured, so did Sauron. It's a horcrux. Is Sauron a dude, or is he an eye? Okay. So, he was a dude... And he's like a super ancient dude. So remember that we're in the third age. I'm pretty sure he's been around since the first. He's like basically a god. He he wouldn't die, but he's like a, a sliver of a soul. He's like ruined Voldemort, basically. The, the whole Voldemort thing is kind of a rehash of this. Right. Okay. But yeah, because he doesn't have a body... There's a struggle to represent what he is then. And Peter Jackson settled on the eye. I think that is in the books. Like people who fight for him use the eye as like a a banner, an icon. Hard to say what Sauron is. And interestingly, in neither the Ralph Bakshi movie or the Rankin Bass, do we ever see him at all? There's just no representation of him other than, like, maybe a sparkly wind at one point. I feel I thought in the third one, in Return of the King, there was the one segment where it shows, like, man, it's all running together. Okay, you finished Return of the King three minutes before we sat down to record, right? So you probably remember best. Maybe it's not Sauron, but I, I thought it was Sauron. It shows in flashes these eyes and these circles and these patterns when it's talking about a force of evil. And I thought that was Sauron. Okay. Yes. So that's what I mean. I said sparkly wind, but it's, yeah, it's like shapes. It's like a blurry blizzard of shapes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I think we're on the same page, not a concrete representation at all, though less concrete than the big flaming eye. But anyhow, that's what he's been reduced to. Uh, But he's not gone completely because the ring isn't gone. Uh, But the human who took it from the battlefield, they say it eventually escaped from him. It, It seems to have a will of its own. The ring ran off and was eventually claimed by this like proto hobbit creature who had it for centuries. It kept him alive, but it also corrupted him into Gollum or Galoom. This sniveling, gross cave creature who has no other thought than to sit alone in his room with his ring. That's one segment from the Peter Jackson movies that always stuck with me. That 
origin story of Gollum. Yep. And uh, that's how this movie starts out. I mean, it uh, a lot of shots I thought I recognized from the Peter Jackson films. I've read various thoughts about uh, Peter Jackson seeing this movie and being influenced by it. Uh, I think the, the biggest specific moment is there's a shot where the hobbits are hiding under a log and the ring wraith like looks down over the side and it was it was like shot for shot at okay at least for that moment very similar i was wondering whether that was either described in detail in the book or borrowed from this because it's a really striking image and another memorable one uh, my single favorite thing about this movie is the way the ring race move so one gets down off the horse and starts walking around and it's like a zombie. Mm. The way that it moves is really spooky. And I thought that was the most effective thing. I think in general, the first half of this movie has a lot more interesting stuff and like better coherence as a story. There was a lot of beats here where I was like, okay, I actually can kind of dig going through a three and a half hour movie in 40 minutes here. And, and like it still kind of holds together. But we catch back up and we're now a generation after the events of The Hobbit. And we mentioned Bilbo is worldly now. Uh, and also he's getting older. He's looking to move on. He's decided he wants to leave the Shire. And so he bequeaths all of his possessions to a new Hobbit, his nephew, Frodo. Not Elijah Wood here, unfortunately. But... The possessions include this ring that Bilbo still has. Remember in The Hobbit, he stole it from Gollum and he's had it all this time. Very handy. Yeah. A good way, I think, to hang a sequel on something you already made. It's like pick some artifact that was mysterious in some way and use that as your doorway to the bigger thing. But Gandalf the wizard shows up again and reveals that this ring is the ring that prologue ring that's super evil and powerful and something needs to be done about it because Sauron's still out there looking for it and so now here is another hobbit put upon by Gandalf didn't think he was gonna have to do anything but now Gandalf is showing up giving him all kinds of homework and Frodo has to go out and destroy this ring Gandalf the homework giver Frodo is joined by three fellow hobbits his cousins, Mary and Pippin, and his gardener, Sam. And Sam just looks so dopey in this movie and acts it too. Yeah, I agree. Not many of the character designs are good. No, but Sam especially, he's going, Oh, hooray, hooray! And he has these big buck teeth. And he's always rotoscope skipping around. <laughs> the other three hobbits just have the exact same face. Sam, you can tell apart because they made him like doughier and stupider. All the other hobbits are indistinguishable from each other. Yeah, I made I made some, wait, is that Frodo mistakes as this movie was going on. I was like, why is Frodo there? Oh, wait, no, it's one of the other stupid ones. Broadly, this movie covers the events of Fellowship and Two Towers, the first two books, at which point I think they ran out of time and money, like you said. Like, they just couldn't keep the engine going anymore at that point. Couldn't keep people in their seats. I think this movie runs two hours and 15 minutes and was the longest animated film of all time at that point. You feel that two hours and 15 minutes, particularly the last hour. It's just like a 
It's like narrating a bullet list of plot points. Yes, which I'm going to try to do as quickly <laughs> as I can. The hobbits have set out, and they have a number of encounters with these ring wraiths, where they're just barely getting away by the skin of their teeth. Eventually, they're aided by this human named Aragorn. He's played by John Hurt here, who we last saw, I think, as the Elephant Man. Whoa! I didn't recognize him. Also, Mr. Ollivander in the Harry Potter movies. There's no Tom Bombadil here, thankfully. Gotta keep moving along. They get to the elven forest of Rivendell, which is where the elf leader Elrond lives. We saw it in The Hobbit also. Uh, now we're there again. And Elrond has gotten a bunch of leaders from the various groups together to decide, hey, we got to get rid of this ring, so what are we going to do? And they powwow for a bit and come up with the decision, which is basically what Gandalf said at the very beginning, which is, you got to go throw this thing in the volcano. Although there's a human there named Boromir who makes a counter argument. He says, hey, we have this powerful weapon. Maybe we should use it. And he gets shouted down. They say, no, we're not going to do that, Boromir. But, I mean, I think it's a worthwhile argument. As you said, like, if you've got the A-bomb and you're the only one, couldn't you use the power for good? And multiple times in this story, we're going to have a character confronted with the chance to use the ring and at least briefly contemplate, what would I do if I took possession of the ring? Because it kind of inevitably corrupts its bearer if they hold on to it long enough, and they're all going to become golems if left alone with it. Like, Gollum represents the endgame of what happens once you become a ring addict. And this is pretty interesting. It's, uh, you were right, the, the Horcrux in Harry Potter, is, the thread is explored similarly. But I think this is really is an interesting idea of, like, this, the temptation of power and how the spirit, the, the trait that will make you a hero, make you a success is, is humility and denying yourself this thing that you're literally holding on your chest that could give you whatever you wanted like that that amount of discipline yeah tough to resist but the group that's formed to go out and destroy the ring is made up of nine people so it's the four hobbits we've seen already gandalf's gonna go aragorn too and we get three newbies to the group legolas the elf gimli the dwarf and hey boromir's coming also Boromir comes from Gondor, which is a place, not a person. <laughs> and we learn that actually Aragorn is Gondor's king in exile. And I don't know enough to say how that came about, but basically he's been living in the wild for a long time. And the legends are that he's going to return and take up his throne like Simba in The Lion King. Yeah, this... Okay, he's the king. I mean, this never, like, I, it was supposed to be very inspiring, but I don't know. I always care more about the hobbits in the ring than I do about the grand scale stuff outside of it. Sure. Okay, so since we're on the topic of Aragorn, I want to talk about Aragorn for a moment and maybe break our momentum if we have any. Yeah, no, let's go for it. But, so there's no Arwen in this Ralph Bakshi movie. She had a big role in the Peter Jacksons, Liv Tyler, definitely prominent on the posters and stuff. 
Aragorn's elf girlfriend. And this is supposed to be a big rare thing because the elves live forever. Humans obviously don't. So you don't get a whole lot of relationships between the two. And so this is like this rare, special, great love that Arwen's going to commit to this mortal who's not going to last long. So she's nowhere in the Ralph Bakshi movie. But Aragorn does pull the hobbits aside at one point to tell them the story of these two characters, Baron and Luthien. And this was the only time I heard them mentioned in these films we watched this week. Mm -hmm. But... If you dive below the surface a bit, I'm sure they probably get mentioned in like the extended edition of Peter Jackson, but they're not prominent. Baron and Luthien were like the first human elf romance. And it's a parallel to Aragorn and Arwen. And Tolkien cared a lot about Baron and Luthien because they are stand-ins for him and his wife. Hmm. And, like, the courtship of Baron and Luthien brings in, like, real-life events of their courtship. And he was, like, really invested in this. Basically, these are Tolkien's and his wife's D&D characters. <laughs> and they put Baron and Luthien on their tombstones. Really? Which I cringe so hard at. I can't even imagine that you put your D&D character on your tombstone. I mean, I guess if you're married to J.R.R. Tolkien, that's the kind of thing you have to be ready for. But this just really sticks with me because your tombstone is not really for you. It's for the people who come after you who have some kind of connection to you. And they're using it to remember you as like a part of the family, as some connection that you had with them, not the D&D campaign you had going on. You make an interesting case. I was going to say, I feel like if anybody could get away with it, it's J.R. Tolkien. But yeah, I mean, I guess people will always know who J.R.R. Tolkien is from now until civilization collapses. But it is kind of weird that like this physical thing that is you for the rest of eternity. That's what you choose to do with it. It's like an inside joke, right? It's like, I don't know. Have you ever gone and read your, your books from 12th grade? It's since you've been an adult and the jokes that people wrote in when they were signing your yearbook and it just doesn't mean anything to you anymore. I feel like it's the same thing. Like, 150 years later, you're who's going to care? I mean, I guess because it's Tolkien, you might. But like, oh, this were the cute names that we called each other. When we made up stories, these were what we thought each other were. Like, that's, you're right. That's for you. That's not for generations to come. Yeah, good point. It's just interesting. It's something that not everybody knows. And I just wanted to point out. Are you going to put Gauntly on your tombstone? I might, but... <laughs> Maybe not if I'm married. Who who knows? Who can say? Obviously, there is an element of romance to these fantasy stories. Mm -hmm. And so I guess you can't begrudge somebody that. But the, the group heads off. And to, to simplify things, it's more of the same from The Hobbit. They face a lot of episodic challenges. Uh, they journey down through this dwarf kingdom under the mountains. 
and they run into a bunch of orcs that they fight off. They fight some trolls. And then this Balrog comes out, which is this big fiery demon thing. And it apparently kills Gandalf. They have a showdown. Gandalf falls into the abyss and everybody has to run out the other end of the cave, head off without their deus ex machina wizard. And they later meet another group of elves in another magical elven forest. Notable, though, because this elf group is led by Galadriel, who is like the only woman in this movie who talks. And notable, there weren't any at all in The Hobbit, so you got to point it out when it happens. <laughs> no Bechdel test passing here. Right. Uh, but by the end of part one, at least the, the fellowship part, Boromir rises up. He still wants to use the ring as a weapon. He's starting to feel ring envy. And he attacks Frodo. And Frodo runs off. And so now the group is splintered. But the the orcs attack again. Boromir redeems himself a bit by defending the, the other members of the party. Gets a bunch of arrows shot into him. As you may remember from our discussion of fight scenes last episode. Yeah, Will brought that one up. Uh, but all the same, two of the hobbits get abducted by orcs. Uh, these are Merry and Pippin, the unimportant hobbits. And so Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli take off after them, while Frodo and Sam head off together, uh, trudging slowly towards Mount Doom with the ring. And they run into Gollum, who they enlist to get his help, because I guess he's a ring expert. I honestly don't think I would want Gollum on my side. He He's a wild card. Too much of a wild card. I... I always just like chalk it up to thematic parallel. It's like you have people at different phases of the ring obsession from a, a plot perspective. It's real dumb. I mean, it's dumb from the perspective of if I'm a hobbit, why would I want this guy who covets the ring above all else? I feel like it, there's like some rules it sets about how Gollum has to obey the ring master. That's part of its obsession with the ring or something, but uh-huh. It it is kind of goofy. Yeah. I guess it's a relationship of convenience in some ways. It's like if you keep him on a leash, you at least know where he is. And he wants to be part of the group because then at least he'll be near the ring. So I guess it's it's like a codependent relationship. Right. I, I don't know. Uh, but he's there traveling with them now. And we get this kind of weird like double cliffhanger that happens because two things happen right around this point that spoilers are not going to ever be resolved because uh, Mary and Pippin go off. They eventually escape the group of orcs and run off into the forest and they meet an ant, which is a big talking tree. And it seems like he's probably going to do something, <laughs> but we never see him again. And also... When Sam and Frodo go off with Gollum, we get a scene where Gollum's talking to himself and he's like, oh, I got to do something, precious. I got to fight off these hobbits, but there's two of them and there's only one of me. So I need an ally. And then he's 
he mentions some female character that he could work together with to destroy the hobbits and get the ring for himself, but he doesn't say who it is. If we have watched the Peter Jackson movies, we know he's talking about Shelob the Killer Spider, mm. but we don't know that here. We just never find out who he's talking about. I was trying to remember who that was. So it's the spider. Okay. Yes. He's going to lead him into the spider's web and hopefully they'll get eaten and the spider doesn't care about a ring and it'll just go off and then he'll have the ring to himself. But we don't know that here. Uh, instead, we follow Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli who run into these guys called the Rohirrim who are horse people. Uh, not Not like half human half horse is just people who ride horses and they gradually make their way to the kingdom of rohan which is this kind of middle country between where we started and where we got to get and the king of rohan has been jafard he has an evil vizier who has hypnotized him and gandalf comes in and just says stop that he just immediately says, this is not going to be the status quo anymore. Get out of here, evil vizier. Mm -hmm. And it happens so quickly. It's like, why did they even introduce this? Right. Uh, they definitely did not err on the side of streamlining things that could have been streamlined in this. No, but I thought this was a little too streamlined. Or, or just, I guess it's abrupt. It's, it's not streamlined. It just happens fast. And I thought this was the case even in the Peter Jackson movies where they tried to set it up a little more, but it's like Gandalf just waltzes in and waves his hand and now Wormtongue is out of the equation. Right. I guess what I mean is he probably could have just cut a lot of that. Yeah, I agree. I guess we should at least feel thankful that something is rushed. <laughs> uh, but this king of Rohan, who's now been freed of evil influence. His name is Theoden. And I want to talk about Theoden just because in the Peter Jackson movies, he's played by Bernard Hill, who also played the captain in 1997 Titanic, which means he played a prominent role in two of the three films that have won the most Oscars in history. Only three movies have won 11 Oscars and Bernard Hill, a pretty meaty role in two of them. Wow. They should rename it from the Oscars to the Bernards. <laughs> the Bernies. I like it. But orcs are coming to attack Rohan. And so Theoden and Aragorn work together. They shepherd all of Rohan's people into this fortress that they have on standby. It's like their fallout shelter. It's called Helm's Deep. And that's where they're going to store all the people for this siege that's coming. And this group of orcs is led by a guy named Saruman, who we haven't talked about at all. And his name is just so similar to Sauron that why did they do this? This is awful. <laughs> Agreed. I've never accepted it. Also, he's Gandalf's boss. There's like this group of wizards who are, they have a wizard collective. There's not very many, but Saruman is the boss wizard. And he's evil now. He kind of wants to work with Sauron, but ultimately he's got his own interests and he wants to be the big cheese. He's got a group of orcs. He's got a tower. So the book is The Two Towers. 
but here's the big fight that is Saruman-centric. And uh, it comes to a head. Aragorn and Theoden don't think they can hold out, but they're going to go out in a blaze of glory. So they ride out of the fortress on their horses and they get Gandalf ex machina because he rides in with his horse and the Rohirrim, these horsemen who had been kept to the outskirts of the town by decree of the evil vizier, but now they're welcome back and they fight off the crowd of orcs and we have like this 30 second blurb of shoehorned in narration. Wow. Uh, look at this glorious end, this conclusion of the Lord of the Rings. And it was like, you know, it's kind of a, just a half-assed ending because we got to end the movie now because we, we don't have anything else to show right now, but obviously there is more story. So the sequel is up in the air. There's most likely going to be a sequel, but we don't know what it is yet. And so this is where we end things. It literally sounds like, you know, they, they were in the recording booth and the guy said, hey, uh, your time runs out in four minutes. So you better record something because you're out of money and you can't pay for this recording studio anymore. And this is like what they came up with. It's a way to, should there be no sequel, then... This is the most satisfying thing we could do, but also leaves the door open for a sequel. Yeah. Additional Ralph Bakshi thoughts before we talk the return to Rankin Bass? Kind of interesting, very, uh, just an ambitious thing. I, I don't, like, it's kind of hard to view this without the Peter Jackson in your mind. And uh, one major not good thing I'm going to talk about is it really just feels like so soulless without the incredible Howard Shore score. I mean, it's like, imagine a poorly animated Star Wars with no John Williams. D doesn't that just sound horrible? That's kind of what this is. But there is still something kind of ambitious about it and like the fidelity and sincerity, sincerity it was trying to address this great literary work. So even though the execution isn't really there, I have a little bit of a soft spot for everything it was trying to do. Yeah, you always got to empathize a little bit with like the tortured creator who takes on some huge project. For some reason, this happens, especially in animation. Sometimes I think about that Thief and the Cobbler movie. Who is that? Williams? Yeah. What was his name? Richard Williams or something? Richard Williams, right? Yeah, where it just went on and on and on. It's like animation is the maybe the one medium where you can sit by yourself and work on it. And it doesn't always work out because you got to eventually throw the resources behind it if you want it to get done. And that's not always possible. Well, there was a movie that just came out this year or maybe it was last year called Mad God. That was some effects artist. I, I need to dive into it because I've been curious about it. Uh, but a great effects artist was working on a stop motion movie for like 30 years or something insane like that. And it just came out. Wow. But things were up in the air after the Ralph Boxy release. I don't know exactly how this worked legally, but Rankin Bass said, oh, well, if he's not going to finish the story, we will. And Ralph Bakshi was there like, what do you mean I'm not going to finish the story? I I'm going to finish the story. And I am not 100% how this shook out this way, but it did. And in 1980, we got Rankin Bass's Return of the King to bring the 
trilogy to a close. It's the third movie in the series, but and it's called Return of the King, but definitely did not shake out in the continuous way, well-planned way that the Peter Jackson third Return of the King did. No, there's definitely some gaps. It's a little more like the Star Wars sequel trilogy, but it does have a lot of shared connective creative tissue with the Rankin-Bass Hobbit. Definitely. Yeah. There is a good line, though, from Ralph Bakshi. This is taken from Wikipedia. It says, Bakshi was aware of Rankin-Bass's The Hobbit TV special and angrily commented that Lord of the Rings is not going to have any song for the sake of a record album. He later commented, They're not going to stop us from doing The Lord of the Rings and they won't stop us from doing The Hobbit as well. Anyone who saw their version of The Hobbit knows it has nothing to do with the quality and style of our feature. My life isn't going to be altered by what Rankin-Bass chooses to do badly. Man, big feud. Years later, he called their film an awful rip-off version of The Hobbit. Wow, really? <laughs> he sold out his own piece. Yeah. Ralph Bakshi seems like a golem to me. <laughs> like maybe he had something once. I don't know. We may revisit Ralph Bakshi before the month is out. We'll see. Uh, certainly he had some choice words for Rankin-Bass. But in the end, this more or less picks up where that other story ended, although there are some threads left abandoned. We never see Shelob. We never find out what Treebeard the Ant was going to do. Uh, the animation style looks a little bit different, but there are a lot of the same voice talent from the 1977 Hobbit returning. We've got Orson Bean again, playing both Bilbo and Frodo. Uh, there's the same guy as Gandalf, a voice actor named John Huston. And of course, the minstrel comes back, because we gotta have songs. Although, <laughs> these songs are originals. These ones aren't lifted verbatim from the book, unlike The Hobbit. Weirdly... This one starts at the end. When Return of the King Rankin-Bass 1980 starts, the ring has been destroyed. And everybody's sitting around in a tavern or a parlor. And Bilbo's like, tell me the story again, because I'm old and I don't remember. And so then the, the bard starts up. And this is like when I was becoming lucid again in my fever. And suddenly there's a bard singing Frodo of the Nine Fingers and the Ring of Doom. <laughs> and that was the other. The, so the two most iconic memories that just sank to my bones were Bilbo looking at the butterflies from the tops of the trees and this bard singing that line, which has never really left my head. <laughs> Do you wish you had a bard who sang about your exploits in a similar fashion? Oh, 100%. I hope I amount to something bard-worthy at some point. Even if I have to lose a finger to do it. <laughs> but somebody who gets a lot more prominence in this movie than ever before is Sam, the Hobbit. He's played by Roddy McDowell in this adaptation. He's actually the biggest on the poster. He, and he, I think you could make a strong case that he's the lead character. Yeah, uh, I mean, I think... In this third one, in, at least in the animated version, 
Sam kind of gets the most to do and gets the most character development. Mm -hmm. And obviously he was a big deal in the Peter Jackson movies as well. I don't know if he ever rose to main character status, but I want to give some praise to Sean Astin. Oh yeah. I love Sean Astin. That is another thing that always worked for me in those movies. Even when other stuff didn't is the Sam character just really likable and really brings an interesting, like you have all these noble Kings with grand histories and destinies to fulfill. And then you just got Sam who's just a nice guy and just wants to help his friend. And he's the one who ultimately like makes it possible. He's the linchpin. It's kind of like Neville in the Harry Potter books. And I always just love that character, that, that aspect of the character. Yeah. There's a pretty neat sequence early on uh, because when it opens up, Sam and Frodo are going through basically the place where they run into the spider in the Peter Jackson movie, except they never they never see it. It's like after that point, I guess. Uh, but they're walking through the dark catacombs up towards finally getting near the volcano. And Frodo is pretty out of it at this point. He's he's feeling the weight of the ring and he's kind of in a stupor this whole time. But uh, Sam is the driving force and we get internal monologue a lot from Sam, which is kind of interesting if we accept that the story is being told by a bard. Like, we hear Sam's thoughts and later we hear Gandalf's thoughts and I don't know if this is made up by the bard. It's it's too... We're, we're too deep. We gotta get more surface level. But anyway, we get this sequence where Sam is thinking to himself and he starts thinking about what he would do if he took the ring. And so he imagines like winning the war himself and becoming Samwise the Strong. And this was something I haven't seen in a Lord of the Rings adaptation that I thought was kind of cool. And then he eventually breaks away from that vision. He pulls himself out of that daydream because he thinks about what he really wants out of life, which is just to go home and have a family and a peaceful life. Yeah, I like this idea of the the vision of what the power would mean. I feel like as important a concept as that is, this is honestly maybe the best it's ever visualized and like given a concrete basis. Um, I mean, maybe except the Boromir stuff, but I agree. I like that beat. Right. Yeah. It never really gets beyond in most adaptations, somebody just getting angry and greedy. But I, I liked seeing it more realized the sense of what if a good person takes it and uses it with their noble ambitions and just actually seeing that play out and eventually fall apart. And I, it was worthwhile. I thought uh, one of the strong points of the special. Uh, elsewhere, though, the other members of the former fellowship are scattered around without really much information, like nothing to tie where they were at the end of Bakshi's film to where they are now. They just say that Mary is in Rohan and Pippin and Gandalf are in Minas Tirith, which is the capital city of Gondor. Yeah, I'm not going to lie. I was maybe checked out. It's not the right word, but we're just like blending four timelines here and characters all over the place. And I just had no concept of what was happening. Yeah. It's all scattered around insufficient setup. If I hadn't watched these movies back in 2020, the, the Peter Jackson movies, I would probably be lost. 
I was absolutely definitely lost when I was nine. Uh, although, what I thought was a little neat is that Pippin's Gondor uniform looks like identical in this movie to the Peter Jackson movie. He's got like this blue tabard shirt with the silver tree of Gondor on it. And it this must be like an illustration in the book or something because it's like identical. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what to make of that. I just thought it was neat. But there's a mad king in Gondor. Well, I, technically, he's a steward because he's he's keeping the throne warm should Aragorn ever come back. And this guy's name is Denethor, which is a, a name way too similar to Theoden, as far as I'm concerned, for another mad king. Oh, yeah. Uh, this this guy is Boromir's father, although I don't think that gets gone into here. And he's going nuts. He is convinced that Sauron is going to win the war and everything is done for. And so he kills himself, but it happens off screen. We just see him going crazy and then it like fades out and Gandalf says, Thus passes Denethor. Not nearly as dramatic as when he sets himself on fire and throws himself off a mountain in Peter Jackson. Right. I was getting vibes of the Earth Queen is no more in Korra. Absolutely. Did Denethor just die? <laughs> you know, it's not exactly clear. But there's a big battle coming together in the field out front of Minas Tirith, which is this big walled city that just happens to be right across the street from Mordor, which is Sauron's big fortress kingdom. And like how the war didn't start here, I don't know. I'm sure somebody could explain it to me. But it's like here at the big climax of the saga, we're having this battle right out front of Sauron's front porch. So uh, I don't know. I don't know how that works, but that's what's happening. Gearing up for this big battle. And now basically Gandalf is the authority here in Gondor. So he's going to have to marshal the forces alongside Aragorn, who's there now. He's the king who's returned and he's going to have to come into his own. He looks more like Viggo Mortensen now. He has the beard, whereas John Hurt did not have a beard. Right. It is interesting to see the cartoonier Rankin-Bass monsters getting ready for this big epic battle. Because we said in Ralph Bakshi, the orcs were just kind of spooky silhouette men with fangs and red eyes, which was scary. Uh, but now we're back to these like bulbous toad goblins that were in the Rankin-Bass Hobbit and fit that tone pretty well, but are definitely different from what we got in Peter Jackson. Oh, yeah. The tone of this one is like catastrophic. It's like this dark epic saga, but they're still in like the whimsical singing along. Here comes ugly fella marching down the path. What mischief is he going to get into storytelling mode that was in the, the Hobbit one, which, of course, was worked really well for that. But just I was getting tonal whiplash here. Right. And the orcs have a song here because in the subplot with Sam and Frodo, as they're marching along, they come into possession of orc military uniforms, orc armor. And so they wear it like as a Scooby-Doo disguise. 
and an orc captain comes along and says, Oh, you two, get in the ranks. Like, not recognizing that they look nothing like terrifying goblin men. Real goofy. Yeah, it's... This is in the extended version, but only the extended version of the Peter Jackson movies. Wait, this wasn't made up? This was in No, the... this is in the books. What? And it's actually, there are scenes of Elijah Wood and Sean Astin doing this, uh, but I had not seen them prior to watching the extended version. It's like, wow, for a movie that is so dark and so late in the saga, this is super cartoony. I like that beat when it's parodied. I don't like that beat in earnest. <laughs> yeah, especially in like this kind of saga. Yeah, it comes at a weird moment, but I actually like it in the Rankin Bass because the orcs sing a song called Where There's a Whip, There's a Way <laughs> about how they are unwilling slave soldiers, except it's this disco song again. Yeah, the, the disco orcs, they're back. I, that is one of the things that could have improved the Peter Jackson movies, I've decided. More disco <laughs> works. <laughs> I agree. Like, this is a banger. I think this is the best song. I remember vaguely that, like, the Nostalgia Critic did a review of this back in back in the day when I was, like, in my first year of college. And he just said that the singing orcs was awful and, and film ruining. But I was cranking this. <laughs> Uh, I'm glad you like it because I was digging it too. The only song I really liked, um, I was like, okay, this is something. This has got something to it. And I was worried he wouldn't like it because it's kind of repetitive. They repeat that line over and over again. But Oh, I that's true. But what I like is after they say, where there's a whip, there's a way, uh, you know, left, right, left, right. They set up this rhythm and then there's another set of lyrics that's faster that fits into the same metric step. So they do the, we don't talk about Bruno, oh no, what we gonna do type thing. Right. Where then you got two melodies going over top of each other, which I'm usually a big fan of, so. That's cool. Yeah, this, it's a little, a little going on here. I, yeah, I, I like this. Quick, quick question about, we've been following Frodo. Is it just me or does he like get power from just like holding the ring, not putting it on, but like touching it? I was like, this, this is a ring, but if you get power from it and you don't have to wear it, or is he just like getting dark vibes from it? He's like, oh, this makes me a nasty fella for a little bit. Yeah, I think it's a little of both. Like, I think it gives him some strength, but it's dark strength. And the way that he was having this reaction that you're talking about and the way that it made him look gave me really strong vibes of Nicholas from the Care Bears movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's got the same furrowed brow. He's got the same dark bags under his eyes as Nicholas under the influence of the book spirit. Great pull. Yeah, he's got that exact same grimace on a like a formerly cute little cartoon face. But this battle's raging now outside Minas Tirith. And all the orc forces are conglomerated. There are, like, elephants. The ring race have come back, only now they have an air force. Uh, I think most of them are on flying horses, which is different from the, like, dragony things in the Peter Jackson movies. 
Mm. And in the Ralph Bakshi movie, they looked like pterodactyls, which I liked. Uh, but the lead Ringwraith, he has got a more dragony looking creature and he comes down and he's battling. And it looks like the dark forces have an advantage. They actually start smashing their way into the city. But then Theoden and the Rohan riders show up again and they're turning the tide. Theoden, the king, gets killed in battle. But... So something that's been said about this Ringwraith leader, the the coolest, biggest, baddest Nazgul, is that he can be killed by no man. Oh, but luckily, there's a girl there. A woman. Eowyn. Theoden's niece takes off her helmet, reveals that she was there the whole time, and she slays the lead Ringwraith. Yeah, she Mulaned her way in there. Right. Only, if you're like me, you were thinking, <laughs> oh, wait a minute, Eowyn was there? Oh, wait a minute. Who the heck is Eowyn? <laughs> it wasn't just Eowyn that had me saying that in this movie, but you're definitely right. Did we ever see her? She is in the Ralph Bakshi movie, but... If she talks, it's like three words. She's never addressed, I don't think. Maybe she's addressed, but it's not much. She got a lot more meat to her part in the Peter Jackson movies, where she gets friend-zoned by Aragorn. But so now the head's been chopped off the snake, and the dark army is being routed. Things are turning for the better for our heroes. And meanwhile, Sam and Frodo are getting closer and closer into the volcano. They run into Gollum, who we haven't seen so far this movie. And he is looking like the Hobbit one again, the froggy dude. Same voice actor from 77 Hobbit. And Frodo rebuffs him. Uh, they draw near to the lava's edge. And Sam says, OK, here we are. Finally, we've walked all the way to where we've been meaning to walk to. So all you got to do is throw the ring into the lava. And Frodo says, you know what? I don't think I'm going to do that. And he pops the ring on his finger and disappears. And Sam is grieving, doesn't know what he's going to do. But luckily it gets resolved pretty quick because Gollum leaps out of where he's been hiding and he jumps onto the invisible Frodo and bites off the ring, finger and all. And doesn't have very long to enjoy it, because while he's doing his little victory dance, he slides right on off the cliff and falls into the lava and destroys himself as well as the ring. Kind of poetic way for for this to end, you know, Gollum to, to go down with the ring. I kind of liked that. Right. I like it. And this was the other iconic moment that I really remembered Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's the end of the last movie, so it's when I was most lucid when I was nine. The The fever was breaking. But yeah, he, he falls off and he is no more. The ring's gone, and so that's the death of Sauron, too. So out in the field, Aragorn had led the rest of the army, the rest of the Rohan guys, the rest of the Go... The rest of the Rohan guys, the rest of the Gondor guys, over to the edge of... Sauron's front yard and was ready to do battle with the last of the orcs but hey now he doesn't have to 
because everything is, has crumbled to dust, everything is melted away with the destruction of the ring. So Aragorn can go and be king of Gondor, and the hobbits get to go home. But Frodo has kind of lost too much of himself. He's, you know, aged like the presidency. <laughs> He's had this weight on him for too long, and so he resolves that he is going to go with Bilbo and their elf friends into the West. Essentially, and this is something you can read about more if you study up on the Tolkien YouTubers, but the elves have this way to, like, leave the world. They can basically go to heaven. They can depart this realm into some other realm where mortal beings can't go. And because Bilbo is tight with those guys, he has a ticket. And so he and Frodo and even Gandalf are going to go off on this death boat and, and leave the world. But Sam says, hey, you know, I've still got some living to do. And there's this poignant moment where Gandalf says, yeah, you do. You know, even though magic is leaving the world, hobbits are going to endure. And he predicts that essentially hobbits are going to become more and more undistinguishable from humans as the generations pass. And through Sam's efforts, the story is going to be preserved. Basically, the world is going to become the world that we know. And, hey, the reason that we have the Lord of the Rings story as a book is because it's like a copy of a copy of this book that Bilbo and then later Sam wrote down. Do you like this twist where it ends with one of the characters writing the story? I feel like it shows up every now and then. Yeah, so... I mean, it's very much a part of the book and it happens in the Peter Jackson movies. So it wasn't a surprise. I don't know. I feel mixed towards it because this is the same kind of thing going on with Darren Shan in Cirque du Freak. <laughs> in, in, a, in a way, it feels like a self-insert of the author to make himself a little more self-important as like the keeper of this great text. Uh, but I think it works here. When your whole thing is like the world that you have the story taking place in is going to gradually morph into the real world, it makes sense to have a chronicler. What do you think? I think it's hit or miss. I think sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Have you seen the Great Gatsby adaptation? Boz Lerman one? Yeah. No, I haven't. So um, in that one, it adds a wrinkle that's not in the book that's basically that twist and there i felt like it really did not work but i don't know sometimes it is kind of interesting when it's kind of culminating it's almost like a a tribute to the very act of storytelling and it's like a good payoff that like the way that it's ending is a tribute to the thing that you just watched like that's something like circular about that that's kind of pleasing to me oh man um it, it can be hit or miss well, I definitely have some thoughts about the metafictional narrative of The Great Gatsby, but the day will come when we talk about The Great Gatsby, but it is not this day. <laughs> We've got things to do. The road goes ever on and on, and we got places to get to. So, that is the plot summary of The Lord of the Rings. We did it, Dan. The whole thing. Back to front. And it took us a long time, but it didn't take us as long as some. No. 
We watched in three movies what Peter Jackson did in six movies, and we talked about it in the length of less than one Peter Jackson movie. Yeah, I think we deserve a slap on the back for that. Maybe <laughs> 11 Oscars. <laughs> so I think we're getting now towards our section where we pass judgment and decide whether things are good. Did you have other things that stuck out that you wanted to comment on before we reach that point, that precipice? Let's do it. Okay, so Dan, just keeping it to the central texts we covered today, the 1977 Rankin-Bass Hobbit, what are your thoughts? Is it good? Yeah, so is it good is our signature section, where we each give the movie a rating on our eight-point goodness scale, ranging from very not good, which is a one out of eight, to our masterpiece rating, toward the good, which is an eight out of eight. So... The 1977 Hobbit, spoilers, is the one that I was ultimately fondest of. I think pretty much every way it was the best film. I, I, I like the way it looked the best. Um, the third movie had, had a similar style, but I thought the, the first one we watched, The Hobbit, uh, really executed it best. Still kind of uneven. There's The songs didn't do much for me. None of the songs really struck me as bangers. Um, most of them were pretty annoying. And although I did kind of like the idea of having it, of taking it straight from the, the Tolkien rhymes and stuff, the plot is really rushed, but it still kind of works as a standalone movie overall. Um, I'm at a higher end five out of eight. I'm going to say this is a good movie. I do think it works. It's got enough nagging flaws that I can't quite get it any higher than that. But, uh, you know, it, it runs by, flows by. I'm going to say The Hobbit is good. What about you, Brian? So I agree with the things that you say. I think this is probably the most effective of the films that we covered. And I think it's the most effective Hobbit adaptation, at least. It's concise at 77 minutes and still manages to work in the verse from the book. Still manages to work in like all the key events uh, without belaboring anyone occurrence too much i like the vocal performances i do broadly like the animation although i'm not the biggest fan of the wrinkly dwarves and uh, yeah a nice presentation i think if you've not seen the rankin bass hobbit you should check it out and i give it a six out of eight a very good very nice okay our next selection dan ralph bakshi's ambitious lord of the rings from 1978 what do you think I really admire what Bakshi did in trying to do something great, but just because I admire what you did doesn't make it good. And I think there's a lot of things broken about this. I think it is a hideously ugly film. Some of the ugliest animation I've seen, which isn't to say the cheapest. It just doesn't look good. There are some interesting effects and, and moments where it kind of holds together or has like some sort of voice about its ugliness but more often than not it's just not very good to look at narrative wise i actually really was vibing with its tone and even its pace for parts of it in the first half but it really lost me in the second half where it's just piling on characters and plot points like you're just like i said reading an outline out loud yeah it almost feels sorry to cut in but yeah go for it it's almost like the airlift out of Saigon or Kabul. It's like they know the movie is ending 
and they can't keep the audience in their seats for much longer, so they gotta rush all the events of the story onto the helicopter to get them out. It's like, <laughs> get them, you just have to say that they won the Battle of Helm's Deep, and you gotta do it in the next 30 seconds. Yeah, so my head says that this is a not good film, but I have enough appreciation for what was going on here that I'm going to give it a three out of eight, which we have labeled not not good. So it's it's rising just above the pure badness into a messy film, a film that's interesting, but not ultimately all that effective. I would. So, you know, really missing out on the Howard Shore, but kind of liking that it's doing what it's its ambition. And honestly, I, I don't think we would have Peter Jackson's stories in the same way that we have them, if not for the legwork that Bakshi did and his team in really figuring out how you try and capture the story. It was like a stepping stone for a much better version. So I'm going to give it a three out of eight, a not, not good. Yeah. Well said. And like the previous film we just talked about, I'm going to land one point ahead of you. I'm going to give this one a four out of eight, which we've termed good ish. And that's because I have respect for the ambitious nature of it. And honestly, that's really it. It is too long, but at the same time, I mean, he's trying to cram like the entire story into one movie. And so I almost wish that he had gotten there and just done like a full, you know, three hour film and just just do it all. If you're going to do it two thirds of the way, just finish it out. I agree. Yeah, that would have been cool. Um, but I guess that was like unheard of for an animated movie at the time. And this is a hodgepodge of styles in a way that I've never seen. And it's it's a messy movie. Something I didn't even mention is that Saruman is in the film, but they can't decide what his name is. And so the the little Amazon factoid that popped up when I paused it is it said that the various people associated with the movie found Saruman too similar to Sauron in terms of how the name sounds, which I totally agree with. Understandable. Yeah. And so they decided only not all the way that they wanted to call him Aramon instead. And so the result is that all throughout the movie, people go back and forth between saying Saruman and saying Aramon. Okay, I thought I was losing my mind. So they're the same character. I have never seen a movie do this before, where <laughs> people just can't decide what the names of the characters are. Totally bizarre. So it can't rise too high. It's just too messy. But it is one of the most ambitious projects that I've seen somebody take on. All right, Dan. We wrapped the saga with a return to Rankin-Bass... In 1980s, The Return of the King, and what did you think? I wish that I didn't walk away so cynical from this one, because there's some nice stuff there. The animation is like more consistent than the one from Lord of the Rings, for sure. And But somehow, going back to it just made it feel bland. I don't know, how, I don't know why. Like The cleanliness of it all of a sudden didn't fit. And... The narrative, it does some interesting stuff with Sam that I kind of liked. And, but overall, I just, man, I was on zero wavelength of the thread of the storytelling. I didn't, 
wasn't tracking the characters all that much. Even with what I remember, this is the Peter Jackson one I'm foggiest on, which certainly wasn't helping. And that honestly might be a major part of my cynicism is I just, because I didn't have this part of the story quite so internalized, I was even more lost. And some of the same flaws as the the 77 minute Hobbit, where it still felt rushed with some of the bad songs. Although I do like the disco works. I'm there for the disco works. And the whole framing story didn't really felt like it add much. I don't know. I was kind of mixed on it. Ultimately, this movie did not do very much for me. And, um, you know, when there's a split between what my head says and what my heart says, I tend to go for what my heart says and I can maybe fix it later. I can I can amend myself later. But what my heart is saying is that this movie is just straight up not good. It's a two out of eight for me. I think also suffered from just being on a marathon of these movies that that have just so many plot points. I mean, think about all the stuff that happens in Lord of the Rings. We get that in two films here, in addition to a whole story, Hobbit's worth of story in the first movie. And maybe there was some exhaustion going on, some some Tolkien overdose. But I was pretty burned out by the time we got to this one. And, I, you know, there's there's certainly craft there. I would say in some ways even more craft than the Lord of the Rings that preceded it. But... It just felt a combination of bland and incoherent, which is not a a winning formula for me. So that's where I am with Return of the King. And I apologize for being slightly bitter uh, on that one, Brian. Oh, that's okay. We're here to, to share our truth, tell our tales. And I actually like this one quite a bit. I tend to like endings. You know, I, I like Return of the Jedi. Having a second Death Star is stupid, but I like all the creatures, and I just like when the saga comes to an epic conclusion. So I really enjoy the Peter Jackson film. I, like I said, I went back and saw it in theaters again. When I revisited those Peter Jackson films, I had a strong feeling of being 13 again, because that's when those movies came out was when I was 11 to 13. And so definitely I have some some teenage nostalgia associated. Less of that with this 1980 entry, but I like the return to some coherence with the Hobbit that Rankin-Bass made. You know, having some actors come back, having like the same singer doing the music. It made me want to see what they would have done with the first two books. I don't like it as much as The Hobbit that they did, but it brings everything to what for me was a satisfying conclusion. And I'm going to give it a low six out of eight. Very good. I was into it. I think a reason that the series resonated with me in 2020, the the Peter Jackson series, my most recent rewatch, was this idea that the West is declining. The magic is leaving, you know, things are going to get boring because humans are taking over the world. And I just think this this moment when the West is not the big dog anymore is captures a, a zeitgeist that's resonant now. Yeah, that's cool. I will say watching these really made me want to go see the Peter Jackson movies again, particularly mm-hmm. if I can have someone sitting next to me who knows it much better than I do. And I can say, wait, remind me who that guy is. And why do I give a shit what this kingdom is and <laughs> stuff like that? 
keep me more invested. And I think I would have a much better viewing experience than I have in those movies in the past. And that I did maybe even with these animated movies. And, you know, I still think some of the plot devices, at least as I understand them, still feel kind of dumb to me um, Mm -hmm. and, and overwrought. And just there's too much of stuff. But I'm open to loving them. So many people I know love them. There's they're just cool ideas. The premise is cool. Right. And so I want to love it. So I want to give it another try. Right. I would still say I'm not at a place where I love the series, but I probably like it more than at any point in the past. Yeah. And there's just a a romance and a scale to the fantasy genre that wouldn't be there without the contributions of this series. And I've always kind of liked the idea of it much more than I like the specifics of this franchise. You know, the, the idea that a world can be so deep that there could be people who learn to speak these languages. It's kind of mind blowing. So that is the Lord of the Rings saga. I left these films inspired enough to go watch the three Peter Jackson hobbits. So I guess be grateful that you didn't <laughs> feel that motivation, Dan. Uh, a rare moment where the tables have turned and I watched more than Dan did. Yeah, that's no, that's uh, that's impressive. That's a lot of watching. And I do hope to catch up with those ones at some point. This week was not that week, but someday. Well, I thank you for sitting down with me for as long as you have here, Dan, and talking this out. And listeners, you too. Thank you for <laughs> sitting through it. Thank you for sharing the journey. May it be. So, Dan, Animonth continues. What is coming in our second age? So, you know, pre-1990 suggests that we're kind of thinking about earlier animation. And so I'm just going to go as early as we can go, at least as far as features go. I'm going to have us watch the oldest surviving animated feature, which is often misattributed to Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. But it's actually a 1926 German film that is translated to The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. So that is what we will be watching. It's uh, it's actually fairly short. It's only 66 minutes. So I'm going to spin up some shorts, some early animated shorts to really maybe dive into what is some of the early history of cinematic animation. And that's going to be our topic for next week. Cool. We'll talk through the adventures of Prince Ahmed. I'm excited. Send me those links. Have you seen Prince Ahmed before? Never seen this one. Cool. I have seen this one before, but we'll talk about that cinema going experience next time. All right. Thanks, listeners. I know it was an epic this time (laughs) as it needed to be. And I'm glad I had the opportunity to share. Slice your finger off and uh, throw it into the lava. Only while the bards are watching. (laughs) Hope you join us again next time, listeners, here on The Goods. (laughs) 